Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... Kind of been the de facto leader of a, you wouldn't say anti-EU, but anti-centralisation within the EU bloc. Hungary continues to be the problem child of the EU, with Sweden still waiting for the country's approval to join NATO. Viktor Orban is also being difficult over the issue of Ukraine with his support for many of Vladimir Putin's initiatives. Also on the program, the market's nervous around the world as the Chinese giant property developer Evergrande has been ordered into liquidation by a Hong Kong court. We find out what this means and whether it affects Australia. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. Elon Musk has hit the headlines once again with the announcement that his company Neuralink has implanted the first brain chip into a human being. The implant operation has proven successful, with Elon Musk releasing a statement that promises neuron spike detection has been found in the patient's brain. The implantation is part of long-term research into motor neuron disease, and the implant will allow patients to move parts of their body. Georgia Hayway asked Dr. Sarah Helliwell from Curtin University and the Parent Institute, how could a small chip in someone's brain control their body movements? Yeah, it really sounds like science fiction, right? But it's technology that has been around for quite some time now. Actually, this isn't the first time that chip like this has been implanted in the brain. The first one was about 20 years ago, um, but this is definitely the most sophisticated version to date. So the way it works is that it's implanted in a part of your brain called the motor cortex. And um, what we've found over a long history of research is that if you think about doing a specific movement, like stretching your arm out and reaching for a cup, just thinking about that activates the part of the brain that's responsible for that movement, which is why it's really great for people who have lost movement in their body, but their brain can still recapitulate the thoughts of the movement so that you can send those signals out into a robotic arm or a computer interface and you can understand the intention of the movement. Right, right. So it's kind of like the brain is still working and you're just trying to get that to sort of connect back up to that body part with technology. Yeah, exactly right. So it's um, we think it'll be really revolutionary for people who have lost the ability to use their limbs. So this is people with spinal cord injuries, particularly quadriplegic, so people who can't move their arms or their legs, and people who have things like um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which have gradual decrease in motor function as well. So we can still pick up the signals from the brain because the brain is working fine and we can use that to do a motion for them or to think about the action that they want to do. That's, that sounds pretty incredible. This uh, Neuralink project needed Food and Drug Administration approval, FDA approval. What kind of conditions have to be met before someone can uh, implant a chip into another person's brain? Yeah, obviously because it's a brain surgery, it needs really, really stringent approval. So it takes years to get this kind of approval. And in fact, they've been trying for several years now 
and just got approval for Neuralink last year. Um, so they need to make sure um, through kind of rigorous experiments that implanting the chip is going to be safe, um, that it won't have any side effects um, and that it can be done under the right conditions, um, that it is ethical um, and there's an, a need for it, um, that it could genuinely help people. So there's a whole lot of different categories that they have to satisfy and then they need to collect a lot of data um, over the first people. So they're doing a trial at the moment with Neuralink um, and this is the first person of the trial and they're going to follow them, I think, for about six years to make sure that everything works okay, um, that the person doesn't have any what we call adverse effects or any side effects, nothing goes wrong from the implant. Um, and they have to report all that information in really high detail back to the FDA. Your own work explores concussion and, and brain trauma and also a bit of technology. Can you tell us about some of the recent advancements in this area and whether it has anything to do with Neuralink or, or brain chips in general? Yes. Yeah, so um, one of the things we think, as we were saying, for people who've got spinal cord injuries and ALS, the brain implants can be really important for them. They could also be really important for people who've had a traumatic brain injury or who have locked-in syndrome. So this is um, not really the mild end or the concussion type of injury, but the really severe injuries. Um, this could help people, um, for example, write an email or a text message where they can think about, I want to write an email to Beth, and they can think about what the content will be, and that can they can be hooked up to the computer and that can really enable them to write that email and send it off. And so it can really have huge effects for communication for a lot of different people. And on the sort of milder end where people have concussions, we can, we think in the future, use these kinds of brain computer interfaces to retrain brain function where, for example, there may be certain parts of the brain where the messages aren't getting through exactly right. So people might have problems with their memory or their attention, their concentration, they might have mood problems and we think we can use these kinds of technologies to help improve those. Dr Sarah Helliwell from Curtin University and the Parent Institute speaking there with Georgia Hayway. Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio or one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too. China's troubled property giant Evergrande has been forced into liquidation by a court in Hong Kong. If this ruling stands, then it looks like there will be no bailout for the indebted property developer. This means that mainly foreign bondholders will be left carrying the can. When problems first emerged at Evergrande in 2021, world markets reacted due to the effects it may have had within China as property underpins three-quarters of the economy. I asked Tim Harcourt, industry professor and chief economist at the IPPG at University of Technology, Sydney, just what global effects could result from the liquidation of Evergrande. It's mainly domestic. I mean, it defaulted 2021 and moved world markets and got a lot of international attention. I think most of the concerns is that it will cause a downturn in the Chinese domestic economy, particularly in the construction industry, and that could have some flow-on effect to the rest of us that trade and invest heavily with China. Yeah, well, I mean, Australia is interested in the construction sector for China because that means steel, and so that's our iron ore and our coal and those sorts of resources. So it could have an effect uh, from that point of view, couldn't it? Well, China did this big transition from a nation of shippers to a nation of shoppers where it built 
away from its sort of export orientation more towards building these second and third tier cities, uh, you know, in Western and Southern and Northern China, these little country towns of 20 million people. And that's been driving a lot of the demand for iron ore and, and so on from Australia. So that, that seems to be continued and to be factored in. I think with this case, you know, there's been a big debt bubble and that's sort of been exposed. So I think that's a bit of a worry politically and economically, domestically for, for the Chinese government. I understand that they've made like a Chapter 11 application in New York. How would that help them? It's not going to really help the whole corporation, is it? No, not really. I mean, it was because they had a major Hong Kong investor uh, withdraw. And in some ways it exposes, you know, this idea that, that Hong Kong is two systems, one country. It sort of just uh, exposes some of the difficulty of having trying to have two jurisdictions and then having China effectively take over Hong Kong. Evergrande is is a huge developer, but it, it's it's huge for China. Uh, the domestic market for China is the the market for real estate in China that similar to ours, for example, or or has, does it have uh, some particular constraints which we don't have? Well, it's still run by the state, and so um, it does get propped up by the state. And to some extent, when they say they're profitable, they're running debts and so on, to some extent, um, it's quite a different system. So, you know, the Chinese state is too big to fail in a way, um, but, you know, obviously they can't have any rogue, uh, rogue companies doing silly things with respect to debt. So hence the default leading to the troubles now. How do you think Evergrande got into so much debt? Has it been as a result of the policy of government in China? Well, it's been, you know, bright lights, big city, uh, getting everyone into the into the CBDs of these second and third tier cities. I mean, I was in a, a city where they built two CBDs. Now, I don't know why you need two CBDs, but they did. And then they built the Great Mall of China, you know, again, with a lot of Australian uh, steel and iron ore and architecture for that matter but um, uh, the local mayor got done for corruption so you know we all had to turn up to the opening uh, so it's you know it's it's a lot of it's to do with this you know fiat planned economy that China's still got that's not based on economic fundamentals so, so what we I was just interested to hear hearing hearing about that what, what were you told at the opening for when uh, you were turning up to something that wasn't going to open yeah, well, they had opened the Great Mall of China and um, uh, because the mayor had been chucked in jail for corruption, uh, he didn't come and no one else wanted to turn up. So they got the Australian MBA uh, class, 38 of us, to sort of make the make the numbers up of the official party. So they had a crowd. I see. <laughs> so <laughs> it was all just for the cameras and all that sort of thing, was it? The... Well, they need to have a few people there. So yeah, right, OK. So we managed to give them an audience, yeah. Goodness. Um, so, so what you know is um, is this strategy that China has embarked upon? Is it looking like it wasn't such a good idea now, or, or is it just this is just a bit of a fillip? Oh no, I think um, you know Deng Xiaoping had, had made China more of a market economy, and it was continuing uh, until Xi Jinping, who's you know increased state intervention, and um, unfortunately uh, that's caused real problems for China. It was actually on a good on a good trajectory for a long time, and now it's got its uh, got a bit of strife with its uh, you know its uh, control of society and control of its uh, economy. You know, it's gone gone too hard with um, 
with regulation and the state. So, so given our reliance on exports to China and particularly our resources, is this, do you think, might have an effect on things like the uh, investment prospects in Australia and, and uh, the Australian dollar and those sorts of longer-term measures? I don't think so. I think we're still probably better off exporting to China. I don't think the investment is going to increase like it used to. I think people generally believe that you know China's a good place to have exports and imports and have a healthy trading relationship, but we're not seeing the uh, the foreign investment in 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 China because of some of the risks now. Most companies are choosing to you know to to export from here. Tim Harcourt, industry professor and chief economist at the IPPG at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers, and this is the Wire around Australia on the Community Radio Network. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. Last week, Turkey approved Sweden to become a member of NATO. Out of 31 member nations, Hungary now is the only member yet to approve of the application. Hungary and its president, Viktor Orban, are some of Russia's safest allies in Europe. What does this mean for the war in Ukraine? Dominic Giles asked Dr Matthew Sussex, adjunct associate professor at the Griffith Asia Institute, what is the relationship between Hungary and Russia? Uh, Look, it's uh, one that has remained close in spite of the rest of the members of the EU preferring it didn't. Uh, Viktor Orban is a well-known populist nationalist, uh, leader who gets on well with Putin, um, and uh, you know Hungary continues to to have you know, not just sort of cultural ties but also economic links to Russia. Um, so Hungary has is, is for a long time been kind of the odd one out when it comes to European Union and other NATO members on on the war in Ukraine, uh, and that's why uh, it's, it's been guilty in the past of uh, of trying to drag its feet uh, and hold up things like aid supplies, hold up decisions over you know, the supply of military equipment and so forth. And, uh, you know, Budapest is uh, is now probably starting to test the patience of, of the rest of the EU members. Last week, Turkey accepted Sweden's application to be in NATO, making Hungary the last holdout. Why can't NATO accept Sweden with 30 out of 31 members' approval? And what reasons does Hungary give for dragging its feet on this decision? Ah, uh, well, you know, the simple reason that uh, NATO can't admit uh, Sweden with with uh, 30 and not 31, is that NATO operates on a consensus basis. So everybody has to agree, uh, and everybody, every member state uh, of NATO has the power of veto. In terms of uh, in terms of Hungary, uh, it does look as though again Orbán has been you know seeing what he can get out of uh, out of dragging the chain. Um, his suggestion uh, most recently was that Sweden should negotiate. With Hungary for its uh, its seal of approval, um, something that really didn't go down very well in Stockholm uh, and in, uh, in in most of the NATO capitals. Hypothetically, if NATO decides that Hungary is dragging its feet too much and they want want them out, what is the process of getting a member ejected from NATO? Yeah, well, again, if you wanted to to eject someone from NATO, you'd need all the other members uh, agreeing. Uh, to do that, and the process for you know someone for someone leaving nation leaving NATO 
isn't something that really has been uh, has been tested before. There are more levers that can be used, I think, to to sway uh, you know Hungary's politics and position uh, within the European Union, and that's why we've seen moves over the last few days, uh, you know, sort of veiled hints about what the European Union could do to Hungary's economy if it continues to uh, uh, to drag its feet, um, and uh, and more than that that, uh, you know, it might uh, even exercise uh, part of its uh, founding treaty, Article 7, which is to uh, spend Hungary's voting rights in the EU. Yesterday, Hungary said that it was open to using $50 billion of the EU's budget for aid with some caveats. Uh, What does caveats mean? Well, the caveats that, that Hungary wants is to review the aid every 12 months. And that's a bit of a problem because Hungary is due to inherit the presidency of the European Council fairly soon. So it could de facto dictate the agenda of that aid um, and make it very, very difficult for it to get through to Ukraine when it was in the presidency. So ultimately, you know, it, its view is if we agree to this aid package and it's over four years, then they're going to have to implement it while they've got, uh, you know, an important role within the EU Council of Europe. So uh, I think the, the, the what the Hungarians are doing here again is to, to try and demonstrate that they continue to have a close relationship with Vladimir Putin and Moscow and are prepared to try and hold up things within the EU process. Um, whether or not it comes to pass that that happens, it's often been the case that Orban has blinked uh, at the last minute um, and, and certainly it's still a, very much a live possibility here. But if it does come to pass, then um, you know, there'll probably be a bit of a crisis within EU decision-making. From the outside, it's looking like Hungary is playing both sides of this conflict. Could this backfire? Oh, look, it could backfire on, in two ways. One is that uh, putting lots and lots of pressure on Hungary and threatening to, to cripple its economy uh, or damage its economy could backfire domestically in terms of strengthening support for Viktor Orban. Um, that's certainly something that, that's happened in the past. But on the flip side, Orban himself doesn't want to overplay his hand because in the past, over the last you know few years, a couple of years or so, he's kind of been the de facto leader of a, you wouldn't say anti-EU, but uh, anti-centralisation within the EU bloc, um, known as the sort of Visegrad bloc. And it's been... Over and since well, it's been since the uh, the, the war in Ukraine uh, really really got kicked into gear that Orban has found himself fairly sidelined. So if he continues to hold up aid, he is going to find himself with you know 26 other members of the European Union vehemently disagreeing with his position and uh, you know starting to look at what they can do to to inflict damage on him politically. Dr. Matthew Sussex, Adjunct Associate Professor at Griffith Asia Institute, speaking there with Dominic Giles. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has come under fire after breaking an election promise to uphold the Stage 3 tax cuts legislated some years ago. Under the new tax changes, people earning over $180,000 in the top tax bracket who would have received around a $9,000 reduction on their tax return would get around a $4,000 reduction instead. It also adds back in another 37% tax bracket, which had been eliminated to get rid of tax bracket creep. Ben Tompkins asked Mark Chapman, Director of Tax Communications from H&R Block, whether this new tax regime has a particular official name. 
Well, it, it, it doesn't. I mean, the uh, not particularly catchy name is simply uh, the, the revised Stage 3 tax cuts. Um, <laughs> so I've already had Stages 1 and 2 under the previous government. Uh, stage 3 was originally supposed to come in uh, from the uh, 1st of July. Stage 3 has now been redesigned. Um, and therefore the tax cutting package is going to be fundamentally different. Um, but it will still start on the 1st of July and it's still really the uh, the stage three tax cuts. Right. So um, this, tax off, this tax cut was originally supposed to benefit um, the income earners of 180000 or more, um, but it's, it's, it's changed. So what changes have been made? Yeah, well, basically it's been redesigned to uh, move uh, much of the benefit to lower income uh, lower and middle income taxpayers. So the current 19% tax rate, for example, is going to be cut to 16%. Um, so that applies for income up to 45,000. Uh, there's then a cut in the current 32.5% rate to 30%. So that is that will apply for incomes between 45,000 and 135,000. Unlike the previous tax cuts, the 37% rate is retained. So that was originally going to be uh, abolished and all rolled into the 30% rate. So that will be retained, uh, but it will only apply to uh, uh, those who are earning more than 135,000 as opposed to 120,000, which is where the threshold is now. And the the current top rate of 45% is going to be retained as it always was intended to be uh, under the, the, old, the old coalition plan and under the new Labour plan. Uh, but the uh, the threshold is to increase to 190,000 from 180,000. So that's it in a nutshell. Basically, the, uh, the, the majority of the benefits now flow to those on low middle income and the amount of the tax cut for those on higher incomes has gone down. Uh, but there is still a, a quite substantial tax cut for those uh, who are earning, you know, $180,000 plus. What do you think brought about the sudden change of plans? Oh, well, well quite simply, the cost of living. Um, you know, people are paying uh, a great deal more for their mortgages, their food, their fuel. And I don't think it would have been a good look politically to introduce these tax cuts, which were so focused on um, uh, people on higher incomes um, in the current climate. You know, if you were earning, say, $200,000, you would originally have got a tax cut of over $9,000. Whereas if you were earning um, uh, at, a, uh, at a lower rate, you know, say $45,000, you wouldn't have received anything. Um, now, as the people who are generally struggling are those on those lower incomes. There, there, there was simply a mismatch there, and therefore the package has been redesigned to uh, uh, address that mismatch. What advice would you give? I know last time we spoke, you'd advise uh, people to claim as much off their taxable income as possible, so make as much uh, as many tax deductions as possible. Is that still uh, the advice that you'd give? Well, for the current tax year, the, we're still on the old tax rates. And therefore, you should certainly uh, claim everything that you're entitled to in order to uh, reduce your taxable income for this current year. Um, uh, you know, if you're if you're going to receive, say, a uh, um, a bonus, 
uh, as, as part of your job, it might be worth chatting to your employer to potentially shift that so that it uh, uh, so that it falls into the new tax year and it is taxed at the lower rates rather than the current tax year where it'll be taxed at the higher rates. Um, you know, if, you, if you've got any form of income which is at all movable like that, uh, you know, bonuses, uh, et cetera, it is worthwhile, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, having a chat to uh, whoever is paying it to you to see whether it can be paid after the 1st of July. Mark Chapman, Director of Tax Communications at H&R Block, speaking with Ben Tompkins. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.